Hello, you're listening to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, Phil and I conclude our journey with Erikos as he continues his conflicted role as the saviour of humanity in their brutal war of extermination against the mysterious Eldrin menace. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say it doesn't go entirely to plan. Many years after it was first published, the rather magnificent Millennium Editions were released. They consisted of some mildly revised texts, and were the result of an effort to place the Eternal Champion books into some kind of sequence, with the Eternal Champion trilogy consisting of The Eternal Champion, 1970's sequel The Phoenix in Obsidian, and 1987's The Dragon in the Sword being placed as Volume 2 in that sequence. In the introduction, Mokak had this to say about The Eternal Champion. This book was the first I ever planned to write. Parts of it were done quite early, in 1955, before I set it aside in favour of work which was generally less, although occasionally more, ambitious. In 1962, I wrote a hasty version of it as a novelette for Ted Carnell, then the editor of Science Fantasy magazine, where most of my early fantasy stories originally appeared. In 1969, I revised and expanded it to novel length, and fundamentally, it's the version you see here. It's the cornerstone of my heroic fantasy sequence, and in some ways a key to my other, more ambiguous novels. Stylistically, this romance is one of my least complex. As a story, it's one of my simplest. However, since it's the starting point for so many other stories, these qualities are probably virtues. It's the first book in the Eternal Champion cycle, which includes eight Elric books, seven Hawkmoon books, six Cora books, three Michael Caine books, the Von Beck books, and more or less directly, all my other books where the idea is used primarily for metaphorical possibilities. Together with the ideas of the multiverse, I coined the term in my first SF novel, The Sundered Worlds, it forms the chief rationale and central metaphor to my fiction. In recent years, of course, with the Cornelius books and the Dances at the End of Time stories, these ideas have been used for entirely metaphorical or ironical purposes. Now, we'll get back to that intro after our visit to Derry and Tom's. But in the meantime, pull up a giant cushion, relax, and join Phil and I as we conclude The Eternal Champion. Hello, welcome, we are back at Derry and Tom's Roof Garden. Hello. <laughs> I'm, as you heard, I'm here with Phil, and we are here to talk about part three of The Eternal Champion. And of course, The Eternal Champion isn't conveniently split into three books like the other ones, but we did um, try and parcel it up into three chunks. I think we did quite a good job, actually. Yeah, I do. I think we had quite natural stopping points at each stage, and uh, and it's worked out quite nicely. So, I suppose, what first thing we need to do is uh, say cheers, because... We're um, we're having a drink of ah uh, that satisfying clunk of a really cheap and low quality massive tiki glass. So um, we're having a drink uh, because we went for a pizza express last night and um, very much enjoyed a gin and ginger ale. And we discovered that we actually have a bottle of orange and cacao Sipsmith gin at the back of the cupboard. So we got some ginger ale. And we're just doing it ever so slightly differently to Pizza Express in that we're drinking it out of what are probably near on pint glass size <laughs> tiki glasses. Um, so, you know, we'll enjoy a, enjoy a nice tipple while we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason we got the cacao engine is because last time we went to Pizza Express and had the same cocktail, 
we went, ah, that'd be a good one to do at home. Yeah. So we bought it and then it went in the cupboard. Yeah, yeah. And I could have sworn we'd drunk it, but there it was. Well, we've drunk it now, anyway. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're talking about um, Erico's and the Eternal Champion, and we'll probably best just do a little recap of what has gone before in parts one and two. So in a nutshell, bloke in London called John Dacre is having strange dreams, laid in his bed, listening to the rain, and having weird dreams about being summoned. And to cut a long story short, he ends up appearing in some great grand old hall in front of a king and his hot daughter princess. Ayolinda. Yeah, but naked. <laughs> um, and they say, you are Erikos, the saviour of humanity. You're going to defeat the hounds of evil. By the way, here's your radioactive sword, Kaniana. <laughs> so he, after a little bit of time, buys into this, kind of falls in love with the hot princess mm, to degrees which were a little bit... Ooh. You know, dubious about. Check out the previous podcasts for details about Erikos's lack of uh, <laughs> swish effectiveness with the ladies. Amor, there was not a lot. No, bit bit uh, bit naive. Our yeah. Erikos. So as time goes by, he leads a fleet with the help of Kaitorn, the king's right hand military man, who was a bit of a tool. Mm-hmm. Winds Erikos up quite a lot. They sail for the continent where the hounds of evil are the bad guys, um, who humanity has fought with time and time again over a very long period of time. They're described as not human, witches, warlocks, demons, various other bits and pieces. And eventually they make contact with the Eldrin, have an epic battle at sea, defeat the Eldrin fleet, sail onto their port, Paphanel, where they find that it's basically all women and children. They'd made a pact with the Duke who led the Eldrin fleet and Kaitorn and Co. turn out to be right, downright rotters, betray the truce and effectively wipe out the city of women and children, raping and pillaging along the way. Erikos, who's being tormented by dreams, drinks himself into a stupor and they capture Ermizad who turns out to be an Eldrin captive who is the sister of Prince Arjav, yeah. the head of the Eldrin. I think that's the only reason they keep her alive, purely as a bargaining tool. As a bargaining tool, yeah. Their plan is purely to wipe out the Eldrin. Yeah. So this stage, Erikos is a little bit, woe is me, um, humanity are committing all of these terrible atrocities, but I have no power to do it because of destiny or whatever. Not entirely convinced by that, were we? No, totally not. Yeah. And they take Ermazad captive and return to Necronel, the human capital and the Palace of a Thousand Windows. Mm. Kaitorn and co. stay behind in Paphanel in order to defend it against the inevitable Eldrin counterattack. But what we actually find is that Prince Arjav and his forces bypass Paphanel altogether and land at the coast near Necronel and advance on the city. And Erikos and King Ragnos, who's also a massive tool, are in a bit of a bind because they only have about 5,000 knights. Because everybody else is either out at sea or at Paphanel or um, fighting uh, an invasive war on the Eldrin continent. So that's pretty much um, a recap of where we are. And Erikos, despite all of his misgivings, Ragnos is being a bit of a tit still. Iolinda is like... um, pretty shallow when it comes to Erikos. She wants him to do what he needs to do to be this saviour of mankind and this almost demigod status figure. 
Ericus once again buys into the jingoism, the humankind laud him as their leader and saviour, and he agrees to set out with an army of 5,000 knights to meet Arjo in the field. And that's pretty much where we were, wasn't it? Yeah. Any other thoughts about what went before? No, I think you've covered that very succinctly. Yeah. But what, what we do know is that over time, the element of Ericos's consciousness that is John Dacre has been more and more suppressed as he buys into the idea that he is the saviour of mankind. However, when confronted with Ermazad, the unearthly beauty who apparently has the power to contact, in inverted commas, the ghost worlds and bring forth unearthly allies, Erikos is kind of... Because she's the second woman he's met since he arrived in this world, and he kind of digs Ermazad as well. Is it because of the ghost world, or is it just because she's fit and he's more... She appeals oh, yeah. to her more. Yeah, it's it's, she, it's definitely that she's, she's uh, remarkably fit in an unearthly mm. um, and weird manner, but it's like Eyalinda is the hot princess and daughter of the terribly jingoistic and brutal king, and Ermajad is the slightly mysterious hippie chick who's also gloriously beautiful. And he's also discovered that, actually, despite the fact that humankind describe the Eldren as terrible monsters. Actually, they're the ones who've shown an element of nobility, they're beautiful, they have advanced technology, and everything that he's been told about them, up until now, has been proved to be largely incorrect by his experiences. Hmm. I think that's a good summary of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, we kick off with Chapter 18, whereupon... Erikos rides out with his 5,000 knights... To meet Prince Arjav. To meet Prince Arjav and give battle to save Necronel. So off he goes to intercept Arjav. And on the way, Erikos and his men learn some bits and bobs. Well before we met Arjav's forces, we heard stories of their progress from fleeing villages and townspeople. Apparently the Eldren were marching doggedly for Necronel, avoiding any settlements they came to. There were no reports so far of Eldrin atrocities. They seemed to be moving too fast to bother to waste time on civilians. Arjav appeared to have only one ambition, to reach Necronel in the shortest time possible. I knew little of the Eldrin prince, save that he was reputedly a monster incarnate, a slayer and torturer of women and children. I was impatient to meet him in battle. Can I just add at that point that the feel that the reason he didn't kill everybody like they have done with the Eldren is because he wants to get to Necronel. They've not taken into account that maybe he's not as brutal yeah. as the yeah. as humanity. So the expectation of atrocities and Erikos continuing to buy into Cato and Ragnos and Count Roldero's narrative so that they have this expectation that quite naturally the idea that an army has landed and actually they've not bothered with civilians or committing atrocities is a surprise to them. Yeah. And be, because they're projecting their own standards of battle on Prince Arjav, which is interesting in and of itself, because very shortly we'll find out that there is an Erikosian code of war. So we'll see about that. But also, humanity's come out, they've called Erikos through, they've summoned him. Actually, that was a very good description. They've summoned him. Because they want to wipe out. Yeah. And we're talking total, 100% wipe out. 
Oh yeah, um, of the Eldrin. And and whenever the conversations have taken place, not only with Katon, who was an out and out warmonger, a, a pra- pragmatic and practical warmonger, but actually Roldero, who seems like a a generally okay kind of guy, and Erikos likes him, and is a bit of a royster doister. But actually, when it comes down to the harsh matters of of fact about the war with the Eldrin, Roldero's all for it as well. Kill them all, wipe them out, kill the children. But I think it's because he is a servant of war yeah. and of his king, and I think it's more about that. Yeah. So the armies sight each other at the plain of Olas, and Erikos kind of likes the fact this time around. Previously, he's had either Caton or Ragnos or Roldero or all three kind of around him, and whilst he's been the general, effectively, he's not been the sole leader, but on this occasion he is. So he decides to extend human chivalry and courtesy to the Eldren, much to the disgust of his officers who aren't impressed at all. They send a, a herald to the Eldren camp, but Erikos decides to go with him, which probably makes the herald feel a bit better, because, you know, if these are all terrible monsters, that riding out as a herald to meet this army of witches, demons and <laughs> monsters was probably quite nerve-wracking, but Erikos with goes with him. I'm sure that a lot of uh, heralds who ride out think, I'm not coming back. <laughs> yeah, it must be a real duffer of a job. It, I was it, thinking that. Yeah. Like, I, I, can, I can remember uh, Pops used to say, if I did something wrong, if I was naughty as a kid, he said, you're on jankers. And jankers apparently was an army expression for peeling spuds in the in the, in the blockhouse. Um, but I think in this kind of world, if you do something wrong, you end up being a herald and get sent out to pass messages to de- armies of demons. I always used to think that when I used to watch some of the historical thing with the people playing the drums yeah. and the music and you just think yay there's no hope for you yeah yeah that's right or the, or, or the young kid who's got to, who's got to play a, a, a recorder yeah while the match across the field i was gonna say bugle but yeah yeah, yeah yeah well i don't know anything about music but recorder bugle it's all the same to me the first elder in the meet uh kind of a junior officer is particularly unimpressed and and um has a particularly negative attitude towards Erikos for pretty good reasons. Yeah. Um, given what happened at Paffinel. But they're, they're, now they actually they meet Arjav for the first time. I heard a movement in the tent, and from it stepped a lithe figure dressed in half armour, a steel breastplate strapped over a loose shirt of green, leather hose beneath leg greaves, also of steel, and sandals on his feet. His long black hair was kept away from his eyes by a band of gold bearing a single great ruby. And his face, his face was beautiful. I hesitate to use the word to describe a man, but it's only one that will do justice to those fine features. Like Hermesad, he had the tapering skull, the slanting orbless eyes, but his lips did not curve upwards, as did hers. His mouth was grim, and there were lines of weariness about it. He passed his hand across his face, and looked upon us. I am Prince Arjav, of Mernadin, he said in his liquid voice. What would you say to me, Erikos, you who abducted my sister? I came personally to bring the traditional challenge from the hosts of humanity, I said. He raised his head to look about him. Some plot, I gather. Some fresh treachery? I speak only the truth, I told him. There was melancholy irony in his smile when he replied. Very well, Lord Erikos. On behalf of the Eldren, I accept your gracious challenge. We will battle then, shall we? We will kill each other tomorrow, shall we? You may decide where to begin, I said, for it is we who made the challenge. He frowned. It has been perhaps a million years since the elder and humanity fought according to the code of war. How can I trust you, Erikos, 
we have heard how you butchered the children. So at this point, Eric Hurst kind of gets quite defensive and says, I didn't kill the children. No, <laughs> He's he just, very quick to do that, yeah, yeah. isn't it? No, he, he just got pissed in a room while you listened to the sounds of destruction and murder so and all those all horrendous right things. I didn't actually physically do it. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 again, it's, it's pretty lame of Eric Hurst, but pretty typical of, of his self-justification for his actions so far. He's still in this strange place where I'm sure John Dacre would be absolutely appalled by all of this, but he seems to be suppressing that part of his personality in order to accept destiny. It's destiny. But he also learns now that their pivot to land and make for Necronel and not retake their lost territory was, was to rescue Ermazad. Erikos' hypocrisy has another chance to surface here. I wondered if that was your reason. I smiled a little. We should have expected it, but we did not. You realise that they will, should you win tomorrow's battle, threaten to kill her if you do not retreat. Arjav pursed his lips. They will kill her anyway, will they not? They will torture her. I know how they treat your elder and prisoners. I could say nothing to the contrary. If they kill my sister, Prince Arjov said, I will burn down Necronal, though I am the only one left to do it. I will kill Ragnos, his daughter, everyone. And so it goes on, I said softly. <laughs> oh, Erikos, you absolute twat. <laughs> so you've got Erikos saying, oh, and so it goes, this cycle of murder. And he's done nothing whatsoever to actually try and arrest it. No. And there's this moment where he almost tries to seem morally superior to Arjav, which is really remarkable. Yeah, when he he's very melancholy, isn't he? It's very, oh, woe is me. Yeah. So to sat, to sit there while they're killing all the children, I'm sorry, but he could have intervened. Yeah. Anyway, Arjav accepts the challenge and requests terms that Erikos can't meet. If, if we win, you'll release Ermazad. And Erikos is quite straightforward and says, you know what, even if we did agree that between us, Ragnos and Co won't do it. Erikos knows that they're not honourable. So he just says no, and they have to get down to it. Well, it's after the broken truce. Yeah. He cannot trust Caton and Ragnos. So they get down to a battle. And Moorcock, as always, writes great battling. It's... All over in a couple of breathless pages, but as usual, it's super evocative. And some of the text about the preparation for the battle is some of my favourite stuff. We've read, whilst we've been doing this show, we've read bits where there's preparation for a battle and the creaking of timbers and ships' hulls and men getting ready, but this is another great example of how he kind of builds tension. I lifted my visor to get a wider view of the surroundings. The ground seemed good and dry. There appeared to be no places with superior advantages. The horses' hooves thumped the turf. The arms of the riders clattered at their sides. Their armour clashed and their harness creaked. But in spite of this, a silence seemed to fill the air. Nearer we came, and nearer. A flight of swallows flew high above us, then glided away towards the far-off hills. I closed my visor. The back of the horse jogged beneath me. The cold sweat seemed to cover my body and clog my armour. The lance and the shield were suddenly very heavy. I smelled the stink of other sweating men and horses. Before long, I would smell their blood too. And my first thought was, what was he actually feeling at this point? Yeah, well, this, this, it, it continues. 
And because of our need for speed, we'd brought no cannon. The Eldron, also wishing to travel rapidly, had no artillery either. Perhaps, I thought, their siege machines were following behind at a slower pace. Nearer now, I could make out Arjav's banner and a little cluster of flags that were those of his commander. I planned to depend upon my cavalry. They would spread out on two sides to surround the Eldron, while another arrowhead of horsemen pierced the centre of their ranks and pushed through to the rear so that we would surround them on all sides. Nearer still, my stomach grumbled, and I tasted bile in my mouth. <laughs> it's, it's just brilliant. Yes. It's, it's so good. You know, he's this massive six foot three superheroic saviour of mankind, but he's riding into battle and he tastes bile because it's like that thing about no matter how used to get you, you get to doing something stressful, you always experience that sense of stress and anxiety before you do it. Yeah. And going into battle in this kind of scenario, even for someone like him, it's like he's, he's used to it. He's not complaining about it, but it's matter of fact that he's got that sense of bile rising in his stomach about what's to come. It's just so good. Anyway, the charge and Erikos makes for Arjaz and the fight for a few minutes before an astonished Erikos hears the rally of his forces. One of the generals rallies the forces and he realises actually that despite the fact that he's had his head down, something's gone slightly wrong because he and Arjaz both acknowledge that Mankind had the advantage in numbers, should probably win that battle, but something's gone slightly wrong. Just going back slightly, I just picked up on something as he was looking, as you say, he was looking for Arjash to engage in battle. Yeah. And he put, I hate him because I must fight this battle and possibly kill him. Yeah. Which again, it's like, so are you saying you like him? Yeah. But it's his fault that he's made you come to battle. Yeah. Which is... Bizarre. Yeah, so you must construct uh, like an effigy of the individual that you're fighting in order to hate them so you can actually do what you intend to do because destiny has told you that you've got to do it. Yes. And, yeah, like a, a constructed hate in order to facilitate murdering and killing. It must be a hard one to swallow. Yeah. So everything's gone a little bit pear-shaped. The Eldren have brought along what they refer to as halflings. Of course. Mm. But not halflings in the sense of hobbits. Because <laughs> in role play, most role-playing games that never had the license to do Tolkien, halfling is what you call a hobbit. Yeah. But in this case, it's it's Eldrin allies from the ghost worlds. Yeah. He rallies his forces and they charge again, but everything goes pear-shaped again. And it's because there are these forces which seem to disappear and appear at will. So... Again, he's fighting Arjav, and Arjav seems pretty handy because they're fighting each other for like a good half hour. And then once again, he hears a voice some distance away. Rally the standard. Rally, knights of humanity. We had not succeeded in our tactics. This was obvious from the cry. Our forces were attempting to consolidate and attack afresh. Arjav smiled and lowered his mace. They sought to surround the halflings, he said, and laughed aloud. We'll meet again soon, Arjav. I shouted as I turned my horse back and spared it through the press, forcing my way through the milling embattled men towards the standard, which swayed to my right. There was no cowardice in my leaving, and Arjav knew it. I had to be with my men when they rallied. That was why Arjav had loaded his weapon. He had not sought to stop me. So once again, the Eldren keep, up coming, keep on coming up trumps yeah. with, with the, the, the chivalry. So now... Chapter 19. Erikos learns from a general of these halfling powers. These Eldrin allies, who were 
seemingly Aldrin from from the ghost worlds, in inverted commas, seem to have the power to move between uh, or become invisible and then reappear. Now, that's very, very close, or that's very much parallel with what happens in the Koran books. Mm. The Vadak have the power to phase between six different, five or six different worlds of existence, and that's how Koran uh, manages to escape the clutches of Glandith the Cray after he's just had his eye put out and his hand cut off and he's being mercilessly tortured. So once again, we have this parallel between the Eldrin, the Vadak. The description of them is very similar to the Melnibonians. So we have this common thread throughout the Mocock books of humanity at some point ends up battling with or committing genocide against a more elder race, the Eldrin, the Vadak, the Melnibonians. Yeah, so I'm sure that the human knights are a bit buggered because they're actually facing Eldrin with some kind of weird, gnarly superpower. How do you, how do you beat, fight that? How do you, yeah, exactly. How do you beat somebody who's there and then they're not? Yeah, yeah. And then they're behind you. Yeah. And this is really uh, Erica's first indication that all of this stuff about them having witch-like or supernatural powers is actually a thing. So anyway, the knights, those that are able, have regrouped. The battle's continued, similar result. And Erikos and Ajav have come together again, fought themselves to a standstill. But again, the human army basically breaks and flees, and they run for the hills. And Ajav offers Erikos a way out. You are defeated, he said. Reluctantly, I lowered my sword. You are a worthy foe, Prince Ajav. You were a worthy foe, Erikos. I remember our battle terms. Go in peace. Necronal will need you. I shook my head slowly and drew a heavy breath. Prepare to defend yourself, Prince Arjav, I said. He shrugged, swiftly brought up the mace against the blow I aimed at him, and then brought it down suddenly upon my metal-gauntleted wrist. My whole arm went numb. I tried to cling to the sword, but my fingers would not respond. It dropped from my hand and hung by a thong from my wrist. With a curse, I flung myself from my saddle straight at him, my good hand grasping at him, but he turned his horse aside and I fell face forward in the bloody mud of the field. I attempted once to rise, failed, and lost consciousness. So the end of that battle for Erikos is pretty undignified, isn't it? Arjav's had him. Even though the the ghost world's bods have, have kind of turned the tide of the battle... Arjav pretty convincingly beats Erikos one-on-one in mano a mano combat. With no, nothing untoward, no cheating, even gives him a way out. He obeys what we learned previously was the Erikosian code of war that's um, implemented between humans, but they will not extend to the Eldren. Once again, the Eldren have the moral superiority and a code of ethics that, that the humans, even Erikos, in this circumstance, just can't commit to or live up to and also what does it say about the Eldrum when their prince their ruler walks away when he could kill yeah Erikos who they know could kill wipe out all their armies yeah especially with his uh, poison sword Karajana yeah, yeah. yeah and they leave him so we now know that Arjav not only is he morally superior he's fucking nails as well anyway it kind of shows that maybe he doesn't want a, f- a war he just wants his sister back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we learn a little bit more about that. We learn a little bit more about the yeah. Eldrin motives. Chapter 20, a bargain. So Erikos wakes after another dream 
another one of his weird dreams, and learns from Arjav, who's put him up in a, a big swish tent, that the human army scarpered and the Eldrin released any prisoners and let them go as well. So he didn't actually ride off, did he, at that point? They picked him up and looked after him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, they didn't leave him in the mud. The the nest the nest is his wounds released the prisoners, so he learns more of the Eldrin now and of their commitment to peace and of the ghost worlds. So Arjav says, the ghost worlds are solid enough, but exist in an alternative series of dimensions to our own. There are many such series, our philosophers believe, possibly an infinite series. On the worlds we know, the halflings have no special powers, no more than we have, but here they have. We do not know why. They do not know why. On Earth, different laws seem to apply for them. More than a million years ago, we discovered a means of bridging the dimensions between Earth and these other worlds. We found a race akin to our own who will, at times, come to our aid if our need is especially great. This was one of those times. Sometimes, however, the bridge ceases to exist when the ghost worlds move into another phase of their weird orbit, so that any halflings on Earth cannot return and any of our people are in the same position if they are on the ghost worlds. Therefore, you will understand, it is dangerous to stay. Is it possible, I asked, that the Eldrin came originally from those ghost worlds? I suppose it is possible, he agreed. There are no records, though. Perhaps that is why the humans hate you as aliens, I suggested. That is not the reason, he told me, for the Eldrin occupied Earth for ages before humankind ever came here. And again, that's a parallel. With uh, with the Coram books, originally this um, was based upon a short story. This this novel was released in the late sixties, and it was a rewrite and extension of a short story that Marcox says he wrote in about nineteen fifty seven. And as a patron extra, once we've done this, we'll look at the short story and we'll give it a read and just take a look at it and, and discuss our thoughts about it. But it's uh, even at this point, his multiverse idea which he did coin in another book, which of course we'll get to at some point, is already kind of well embedded in his fiction. And although sci-fi novels like Rituals of Infinity and the Sundered Worlds have been there already, this is really the first indication of Moorcock's grand architecture beginning to reach up from its foundations, because we've got the dreams that he experiences where he's, he's remembering different identities and different names, and now we've got this reference to alternative worlds where the passages between the ghost worlds in other books will be referred to as the moonbeam roads the conjunction of the million spheres is when these things revolve around each other and you form conjunctions so you can pass from one to the other and of course there are numerous characters in Moorcock's uh, fiction that actually spend more time actually passing between these worlds than others do so Von Beck Erico's We'll find in the second Eternal Champion book, the Phoenix in Obsidian is subject to this as well. But actually, this is the first time we really find that there are so many multiplicities of worlds and we find that there are characters who are starting to be introduced now, like Oswald Bastable, who effectively occupy a different world on each occasion, even though there are common themes between each one. So we're really starting to get that feel now for what essentially becomes... Moorcock's grand excuse <laughs> to essentially tie everything he writes together. Not necessarily with a neat bow, but with a grand overriding 
theme and architecture, which over the decades he did play with a little bit and change, and he did rewrite some of his books to match that. Um, but this is where it really starts to condense. And I think a neat bow wouldn't fit right. No. At all. No. Who wants a neat bow? Yeah. You want to be able to question things. Part of the joy of reading Moorcock, especially when you read it out of order, because I don't, I don't think anybody has ever read Moorcock in order. Um, and if you read Moorcock in chronological order, it's not story order. And if you read his stories in story order, there are such differences in tone and writing style that it's really, really jarring. So the beauty of reading Moorcock is trying to tie these things together in your own head. And and that's that's what's really uh, uh, quite a rewarding thing when you start to read a lot of this stuff. And it's, it's actually also one of the negative things about it because reading all this stuff as a kid or as a teenager and then continuing with it through your 20s and picking up other things and, and Pokemon style, catching all of the different Mocock novels and in some cases catching different editions of the same novel that have been mildly rewritten to have differences as we've found with the last couple of shows on the Eternal Champion where we've had three different versions of the same passage from different editions of the book. I was just going to say, I'll always remember when you first suggested I read Moorcock and your choice of "Mm, what book should I give you and in which order because Mm. obviously I was soaking them up and really enjoying them and it was about in your head how best to proceed and where to go with yeah. different books that's one of the fun things about having a presence on twitter for example P- people will um get involved in conversations who are aware of Marcock but not necessarily that well read in it and they'll say what artist do you suggest and all the all, all the folks on twitter all have a different opinion yeah <laughs> of where you should start and it's very subjective and it's great but it's, it's one of the pleasures of reading but i think in, in another way it's one of the Perhaps one of the things that I find mildly disappointing about some of his his later output, um, where at one point he tried to draw a line and provide a culmination to the Eternal Champion saga in the late 70s with a book called The Quest for Tanalon. And it wasn't particularly satisfactory at the time. And then he did it again with what is recently rebadged as the Moonbeam Roads trilogy, which once again ties up a lot of different threads, including the relationship between John Dick, for example, and Errolric. And when I read mm. that, I just scratched my head and thought, oh, oh, really? And it's because in your own head, yeah. to suddenly have everything... It's like, I didn't want someone to write a nice, t- <laughs> neat, tidy denouement of all this business, even if it was Murcock who wrote it. But on the other hand, once again, some of the people that we talked to on Twitter... They swear by it and think it's wonderful, and for them it was a really emotional climax. So at some point we'll get around to reading those, probably in about 2036 <laughs> at this rate, but it'll be interesting to kind of reevaluate them again. But I think that's the thing with any author. Yeah. We are all individual and all have our own views, our own favourites, and some people like a nice bow and things wrapped up, yeah. and other people like that you know, for your own views to go yeah. on and be able to discuss it like we are. Yeah. So to then him to come back and do that, and it goes against what you've got in your head. Yeah. There's, there's a perfect parallel with uh, Ridley Scott. So Ridley Scott makes Alien. Yeah. You've got that super mystery about the origins of the alien, 
the origins of what they refer to as the space jockey and the spaceship. It's all super mysterious. And it's brilliant because it's mysterious. Yeah. And then 30 years later, he does a movie where it's all, it's all basically <laughs> eight-foot-tall bald blokes in, in stupid suits. You were happy. Oh, no. No! For, for me, they exist outside of alien continuity. And it got even worse with Alien Covenant because that suggests that the David android created the alien. I'm not having it. <laughs> anyway... Back to Erica. Yeah, yeah, we're kind of going off on one there, aren't we? So anyway, he's learned that the Eldren were the first natives of the Earth and that the humans arrived bearing terrible advanced and destructive weaponry. And the humans and the Eldren warred until the world was barren. But then, as a result, humanity descended into barbarism and forgot their science. But the Eldren remembered theirs. But once again, because the Eldren have that peaceful spine and uh, more cultured approach to living they actually locked their terrifying weapons away and swore never to use them again so even at this point when you know the shit's hitting the fan and mankind is is murdering cities of women and children they won't break out these weapons of mass destruction for want of a better expression yeah because they're locked away for a really good reason yeah so obviously they released all the prisoners yeah but they decided to keep Eriko's to trade for his sister, which actually was Eriko's suggestion. Yeah, yeah, he convinces him to do it, doesn't he? And he also told them to tell the people, not just the king, as he may not agree to this trade. Yeah, yeah, he, know, he knows Ragnos is going to be a bit dodgy. Yeah, but to give that away yeah. to his enemy, his yeah. sworn enemy. But even then the Eldred are, are, are kind of a little bit naive there, because rather than taking him to the gates in chains and saying we'll swap him for Amazad, they'll just let him go. And Erica's is a little bit naive and thinking, when I get there, they'll have let Amazad go. I know, they'll let, her go, let him go on trust. That told him everything he needed to yeah, know. Yeah, really. absolutely. He, the fact that he expected Ragnos to do the same thing. So Yeah, but yeah, naivety is an understatement. Yeah. He, he's seen what he did with the Duke and the Duke's daughter. Yeah, so once again, Erica's is a bit of a buffoon. Yeah. <laughs> so Adjav releases him. They're both naive, the silly sausages. <laughs> He gets back to the Palace of a Thousand Windows in Necronal, and obviously they have totally done the dirty. Yeah, she's still captive, and he has no intention of releasing her. King Ragnos, what is the meaning of this? My word was given to Prince Arjav that Ermizad was to leave here freely upon my release. He allowed me to leave his camp on trust, and now I return to find the Lady Ermizad still in captivity. I demand that she be released immediately. The king and Roldoro laughed at me. Come now, Ericos, said Roldero. Who needs to keep his word to an Eldrin jackal? Now we have our war champion back and still retain our chief hostage. Forget it, Ericos. There's no need to regard the Eldrin as human. Amazad's there. Amazad smiled. Do not worry, Ericos. I have other friends. She closed her eyes and began to croon. At first the words came softly, but the volume rose until she was giving voice to a weird series of harmonies. Roldero jumped forward, dragging out his sword. Sorcery! I stepped between them. Roldero said urgently, Erikos, the bitch invokes her demon kind. I drew my own sword and held it warningly in front of me, protecting Amazad. I had no idea what she was doing, but I was going to give her the chance now to do whatever she wanted. Her voice changed abruptly, then stopped. Then she cried, Brethren, brethren of the ghost worlds, aid me. And boom, she disappears. She's done one. Just like that. Yeah. Chapter 21, The Earth. So Erica's in Flavor of the Month in Necronel, <laughs> Again. 
And even Eyelinda is giving him the cold shoulder. Well, there's a surprise. Well, that's nothing new, is it? Yeah, so Erico's is back in lump and loser mode <laughs> at this point. <laughs> He's trying his very best to appeal to, to uh, Eyelinda. And they call him a traitor. Yeah, well. oh, they're not happy. So he says, what's wrong? Nothing, she said. Should there be? You're safe. I'd feared you're dead. Was it me then? Was it? I pushed the thought from me. But can a man force himself to love a woman? Can he love two women at the same time? I was desperately clinging to the strands of love I had felt for her when we first met. Emma's had his safe, I blurted. She called <laughs> her halfling brothers to her aid. And when she returns to the Eldrin camp, Arjav will take his forces back to Mernadin. You should be pleased. <laughs> I am, she said. And then, and you are pleased, no doubt, that our hostage escaped. What do you mean? My father told me how you've been enchanted by a wanton sorcery. <laughs> <laughs> and hol- holidaying with our greatest... <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, I couldn't help but think of a caravan on the east coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, this is like a scene, right? I'm, I'm going to make a proposition here. This is like a scene in an 80s movie. <laughs> an 80s high school movie where the jock is finding his sensitive side, but the mean girl, who's the most popular girl in school, and she's his complete bitch, gives him the cold shoulder and makes him, pro- makes him prostrate himself and do nasty things before she'll put out again. <laughs> it's a total 80s high school jock thing, isn't it? He's actually falling for the hippie chick, and she's like, you know what? I'm not having this. Go and pelt her house with bog rolls and rotten eggs and, you know, bully her brother and do everything else. And then I'll put out again. Yeah, but she hadn't put out the first time. No, she still hadn't put out. Yeah. She, <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah, I think in this respect, just simply putting out means, you know, holding his hand and having a bit of a kiss in the rose garden, which is the best he's had so far. So, yeah, she's basically saying, right, yeah, we're betrothed, and yes, you are my, my, uh, my husband-to-be. Um, however, before I'm going to show you any uh, emotional connection and before i'm going to be nice to you or kind and not give you the cold shoulder i want you to commit absolute genocide and wipe out everybody on the elder side including all the children and like a burke he's like i'll do it then to make an oath (laughs) for her love yeah to kill every single member of the elder yeah what does that say about him yeah um because shallow doesn't even come into it because he thinks that because he's the jock and she's the mean girl head cheerleader, they're destined to be together. So he's got to be a bastard to make it happen. But it's like he was left alone struggling with this decision. He didn't have to be. No, no. I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of other birds in Necronel. Yeah. But it's all about this predestination thing. I'm, I'm, I'm top jock. She's top chick. We must be together. So this is from 1967. I don't know where the origins of the jock stroke, (laughs) (laughs) the jock finding his humanity stroke, needing to be with with the mean girl cheerleading queen actually originated. But I think we can now agree it originated in 1967 in The Eternal Champion by Michael (laughs) Mocock. It probably didn't, but let's just agree it did. Well, that's another string to add to his bow. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So, anyway... He's a massive tool, again. 
So chapter 22, the reading. It's fickle. Yeah. Is this just for love of yeah. what he does he like? Yeah. Well, in Tash's parlance, um, he's, he's committed himself to woman one, and now woman two has reared her head. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't and know what to do. That's the only two women. Mm. One's a human, one's an eldron. Yeah. Oh, what's a guy to do? Yeah, woman two, insanely fit, bit of a fascist, um, a bit make Necronal great again, um, mean girl cheerleader queen. And then you've got gorgeous hippie chick with gnarly powers, who appeals to his his human side a little bit more and shows him another way. But either way, it's pretty fortunate because he's a six foot three demigod with a magic sword, sorry, a radioactive sword, and he's uh, he's torn between um, the two hottest birds in the world. It just turns out one of them's an absolute knobhead. Do you know what? what? It seems very thick. <laughs> and I have to say, I have to say that I thought with the John Dacre, yeah. I thought it'd be a really Intelligent, intellectual being? Yeah. Um, John Durker might be. We'll find out in the third book in this series, The Dragon in the Sword, because it's not Erico's, it's actually John Durker. I would like to read that. I don't mm. know if I have. I don't think you have. Well, you may have done, because you read this very... I've, I'm sorry, re, uh, listeners, I am now looking at the Millennium Edition Tales of the Eternal Champion, Volume 2, which has the Eternal Champion, Phoenix and Obsidian, and Dragon in the Sword. And I think when we first got together, you actually read these cover to cover. And I felt quite... A, when you brought it down, I felt quite a warm remembrance. Yeah, yeah. So I think you probably did read it, but it may well come back to you when we, when we do get to it. Maybe so, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting that we will now be doing... Warhand and the World's Pen next, which is the introduction of the Von Beck family. Which I'm really looking forward to because I've never read. Yeah. Uh, Von, one of the Von Becks is essentially John Dacre's companion in Dragon and the Sword. So the Von Beck series oh. and the Eternal Champion series collide and merge with the Dragon and the Sword. Excellent. Mm. I'm yeah. Re- yeah, I am really looking forward to it. It's nice to read something new. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So anyway, chapter 22, The Reaving. So Erico's, because he's sworn this oath to to basically get Iolinda to marry him and put out, he turns to training and planning for a month. Still sees sod all of Iolinda, but he turns to training and planning for a month to go and commit genocide and wipe out the Eldren. And describes himself now as less of a man and more of an automaton. Yeah. Cop out. Yeah. So he gets inhumanly buff, turns himself into a fine-tuned weapon of war. I mean, he was pretty buff to start with. But he's now a fine-tuned weapon of war and eventually sails with Roldero and a fresh war fleet. He's, the companionship with Roldero isn't really what it used to be. Um, and everything really now is just a, a mechanical march to war. Warily we sailed on. The Eldren, however, had known of our coming and had all but deserted their towns. This time there were no women and no children, not but a few handfuls of Eldren warriors whom we slew. And of halflings there were none. Arjav had spoken the truth when he said the gates were closing to the ghost worlds. We ripped the towns to rubble, burning and pillaging as a matter of course, but without lust. We tortured captured Eldren to discover the meaning for this desertion, and they told us nothing intelligible. But secretly, I knew the meaning. Our troops became morose, possessed of a sense of anticlimax. Though we left no building standing, no Eldren alive, the men could not rid themselves of the notion that they had been thwarted in some inexplicable way, as an ardent lover is innocently thwarted by a coy maiden. And because of the Eldren's refusal to give them a mighty battle, our soldiers grew to hate the Eldren that much more. 
So it only gets worse. They arrive at Paffinal. Erikos reunites with Katon, but there's no wordplay. Just a shit ton more killing. Yeah. Bit disappointed there. I was hoping that yeah. Katon might have some more wind-ups up his sleeve. But everything just now has become cold and embittered and cynical. A year of bloodshed, a year of destruction. Yeah. Ragnos is there too, and they push on into the interior and spend, as you say, a year killing. And to turn the beautiful Mernodin into a funeral pyre. It's very sad. It's a very good description, though. It goes on to say, I remember a few incidents in detail. Days merged one into the other, and wherever we went we slew Eldrin. There was no Eldrin fortress which could withstand our grim thrusting. I was tireless in my murdering, insatiable in my bloodlust. Humanity had wanted such a wolf as I, and now they had him, and they followed him, and they feared him. It was a year of fire and steel and ruined flesh. Mernodin at times seemed to be nothing but a sea of smoke and blood. The troops were all physically weary, but the spirit of slaughter was in them, and it gave them a horrible vitality. A year of pain and death. Everywhere that the banners of humanity met the standards of the Eldren, the Basilisk's standards would be torn down and trampled. We put all we found to the sword. We mercilessly punished deserters in our own ranks. We flogged our troops to greater endurance. We were the horsemen of death, King Rydanos, Lord Caton, Count Raldoro, and myself. So you get a real... Um, it it kind of reminds me of... Um, there's a sense in... Actually, I'm going to mention Ridley Scott again. In that film Kingdom of Heaven, where the crusading armies are just absolutely burnt out with it all. Mm. They're just filthy. They're encrusted in blood. They're just killing because it's just a, a, a merciless cycle of killing. And actually, they've almost forgotten the reason why they're doing it all, other than the fact that they're their enemy. That they're... they're they're in the wrong, they must be killed. But it's a great description, again, because it makes you feel that they've lost their humanity in doing this. Yeah. Even though they describe themselves as humanity warriors. Yeah. It, it's, they've just become automatons themselves, yeah. haven't they? It's pretty grim. Yeah. It's pretty grim. And he's written it so well. Yeah, and that Londoner, John Dacre, is just completely absent, isn't yes. he? Yes. He's absent, so for a year, Erico's is just a killing, murdering... Machine. The eternal champion. Yeah. But eventually the Eldren do give battle and they lay a trap at Luce Tokali with a beautiful city. Is that their capital? Bait. That's their capital and that's where they, they've basically killed all the Eldren on the continent now and probably in the world. And Luce Tokali is the only last standing bastion of the Eldren and that's where Arjav is. So the attack, a million human warriors attack. And at one point, Ragnos is killed and nobody really gives a shit. Which is what I kind of said earlier. Yeah. There was no jocular interactions when he met up with Katon again. So that was a bit disappointing. And then it was like, oh, yeah, and King Ragnos got killed. Mm. It was that. Yeah. Yeah. Very disappointing, really. They're so burnt out and, and death is so accepted as an everyday occurrence that Ragnos dying... In, in this this trap that the Eldren lay is um it just happens and nobody really gives a flying fuck. Maybe that's maybe that's it. Maybe I'm thinking, oh he hasn't covered this very well. He's just glossed over it. But yeah, maybe it is because yeah. they are so burnt out Absolutely. that it means nothing to them. Yeah. I I, I read this other authors 
for a year uh, would have written a 500-page novel about that year <laughs> of, of, of destruction and character acts and all this business. But the only character act for any of those people involved is that they've gone from people to soot and blood-stained mechanical killing machines with no emotional connection to anything other than simply continuing killing to get it over with, to get to the end. And when Ragnos dies, it's just another... It's just whatever. Ragnos is dead. Eilinda's queen now. Ragnos is dead. Keep killing. Yeah. The end goal is to wipe the Eldred off the face of the planet. Yeah. And it doesn't matter who dies, even if it is your king. And there's something about Roldero pushing him off the horse. <laughs> which, which I'm like, oh, did he do it? In a, oh, he's dead. That's an extra horse. Yeah, that's right. So, um, it's, it's a, I turned to King Ragnos, who sat beside me on his big war steed. He was rigid, staring up at the sky. And then I saw that an arrow had pierced his thigh and embedded itself in his saddle, pinning him to his horse. Roldero, I shouted, get a doctor for the king if you have one. Roldero rode up from where he'd been taking account of our dead. He pushed back the king's visor and shrugged. Then he stared significantly at me. He's not breathed for several minutes by the looks of him. Nonsense. An arrow in the thigh doesn't kill. Not normally at any rate, and not so quickly. Get the doctor. A peculiar smile crossed Laurel Doreau's bleak features. It was the shock, I think, that killed him. Then he laughed brutally and pushed at the armoured corpse with his hand so it tilted over, wrenching the arrow free and crashing into the mud. Your betrothed is queen now, Erica, said Laurel Doreau, still laughing. I congratulate you. <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, I think in in, uh, in previous shows, I, I don't think Roldero liked Ragnos anyway. I think most people thought Ragnos was a bit of a tool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, essentially, Erikos is the gaffer now. Erikos and Roldero, they're the gaffers. They're in charge. And the only one who seemed perturbed by the king's death was Katon. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, there's a little bit of foreshadowing there, and you think for a moment, ah, perhaps without the protection of Ragnos, Katon and Erikos will have a reckoning. But actually, that's just... It's beneath what's going on. It's it's almost irrelevant now. Katon is now an irrelevance. No, and the same because of this, because only Katon seems to show any sadness, that there's now a loss of humanity yeah. within the army and within Eriko's. Yeah. So that night, the human forces camp outside the walls of Luz Tokai, but Eriko's doesn't sleep, he just broods. The following day, he approaches the gate with a herald, another herald, and he calls out Arjav, who appears on the battlements. And Arjav, because he's a top bloke, offers terms <laughs> according to the Erikosian code of war. But Erikos, despite the Erikosian code of war, Erikos is like, oh, no, fuck that, I'm going to kill you all. <laughs> he's not having it. Yeah, so then Arjav says, Before the battle com- commences, I invite you to enter Luz Tokai as my guest and refresh yourself. You would seem in need of refreshment. At this I bridled, but then my herald sneered. They become ingenuous in their defeat, master, if they think they can deceive you by such a simple trick. My mind had once again suddenly become a battleground of conflicting emotions. <laughs> Be silent, I ordered the herald. I took a deep breath. Well, called Arjav. I accept, I said hollowly. <laughs> and then I added, Is the Lady Hermizad therein? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. My man had become a battleground of conflicted emotions. Yeah, I could really do with a bath <laughs> and a nice meal. Yeah. And maybe to see my favourite hippie chick. And then all the hate and the mad battle anger left him and he had tears in his eyes. Yeah. And once again, fickle. Yeah. 
He calls for Ermanjan and suddenly, oh, I'm so sad. Yeah. Yeah, Ajav says, oh, yeah, she is. And she's eager to see you again. There was an edge to Ajav's voice as he answered this last question. For a moment, I was again suspicious. Did I detect the threat of treachery? Ajav must have been aware of my own affection for his sister, the affection I did not admit, but which secretly contributed to my decision to enter loose Takai. Secretly my arse. He's as fucking transparent as the cum. So is. So, okay, discussion point here. We're, we're coming towards the end of the Eternal Champion. Is Erikos, even subconsciously, just steered entirely by his dick? He's a total knob. <laughs> he really is. Oh, I need a word better than fickle. Yeah. Because it doesn't do him justice. Mm. So, you know, he is... Obviously, he's super torn by destiny and all that business. And um, and, the, and the need to perform this function as a demigod and the champion of humanity. But kind of when it boils down to things, he's, uh, he just wants some, doesn't he? He just can't decide who he wants it off. And it doesn't matter if he has to kill millions of people. Yeah, but do you think he's gone more towards Ermitab because uh, Ayalinda didn't put out? Yeah, yeah. You have to question it. Yeah, you do. So anyway, his Harold isn't impressed with him, but Erikos fucks him off and heads on inside anywhere. So chapter 23, in Loose Tokai. So despite being battle-weary himself, Arjav is, of course, a gracious and humorous host, as always. He sorts Erikos out with a nice bath, gets him some, some bits and bobs, gets him some nice tucker. Since the initial emotional shock I had received when Arjav had issued his invitation, my mind had become numbed. But now, for the first time in a year, I relaxed, mentally and physically, washing all the grief and hatred from me as it washed my body. So suddenly did the tension leave me that it might have been the result of elder and sorcery. <laughs> but I think now that I relaxed because I did not have to deceive myself in a loose tuck eye. So is that why you love baths so much? So you can wash off all of your brutal crimes? <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. it, and I've relaxed so well. Yeah, so you, you you spend a year committing genocide, and then the people you're committing genocide are offer you a bath, and you get a hot bath, and you lay down it and go, oh, everything, everything just evaporates. I can take my dirty knickers off, and not only do they give me... I'm, I'm quite shocked that you are telling the listeners about your dirty knickers. No. He's been in his same knickers for a year. Oh, you mean Eric has his dirty knickers? Yeah, That's not mine. Right. Yeah. So he takes his dirty knickers off, they give him some others, and they give him his back freshly laundered. Yeah. He's on a win-win. Pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty good. And naturally, because this is at heart a male power fantasy, Amazad turns up to take him for dinner. Oh. So you don't get any better than this, does it? And she's all like, so have you married Queen Ayalinda then? And he's all, well, I'm going to, but first I have to fulfil my oath and murder every last one of you. So she's like, all right. Well, they do try and get him to change his mind <laughs> and not to do humanity's bidding, i.e. wipe out the elders. They do. They go for dinner and, and really, they do a bit of a number on him, don't they? Well, they question his quest. Yeah. And I like the line, are you sure King Rajanoff's called you? Yeah. Because it doesn't take uh, a lot yeah. to make him think. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're, they're fucking with him now, but they know what they're doing. Yeah. At dinner, Ermazad and I sat close together, and Arjav spoke wittily of some of the stranger experiments of his scientist ancestors. 
and for a little while we managed to drive away the knowledge of the forthcoming battle. You know, where Erica's is going to wipe out every single last member of, of the Elden race. Including those two. Including okay. those two. yeah. But later, as Amazad and I talked softly to one another, <laughs> I caught a look of pain in Arjav's eyes, and for a moment he was quiet. He broke into our conversation suddenly. We are beaten, as you know, Erikos. I didn't want to speak of these things anymore. I shrugged and tried to continue the lighter talk with Amazad, but Arjav was insistent. I've gone from fickle to shallow. Yeah. We are doomed, Erikos, to fall beneath the swords of your great army. I drew a deep breath and looked him full in the face. Yes. You are doomed, Prince Arjav. He's just not getting it, is he? No. Minus 100 emotional <laughs> intelligence points for for Erikos. So if, if we were rolling Erikos up in, in the Stormbringer role-playing game, he must have rolled like a 97 on that background chart, which gave him minus 100 emotional intelligence for being... Uh, a demigod weirdo who was basically only interested in the cheerleader queen. Absolutely. Yeah. But they've totally got his number and they give him his way out, reflecting back at him his suppression of his true identity and his this easy resort to blaming destiny or the will of humanity to which he's bound. They've got his number. Absolutely. They've got his number. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to read again. I'm going to read a little chunk here. You abide by an earth given in anger offered to an abstraction that leads you to slay those you love and respect. An earth made to strengthen an already faltering resolve. You hated killing. I know you did. Amazad's voice was puzzled. Are you tired of killing, Erikos? I'm very tired of killing, I told her. But I began this thing, I continued. Sometimes I wonder if I really do lead my men, or if they push me ahead of them. Perhaps I am wholly their creation, the creation of the will of humanity, Perhaps I am a kind of patchwork hero that they have manufactured. Perhaps I have no other existence, and when my work is done, I will fade as their sense of danger fades. I think not, said Arjav soberly. I shrugged. You're not me. You've not had my strange dreams. You still have those dreams, Amazon said. Not recently. Since I began this campaign, they've gone away. They only plague me when I attempt to assert my own individuality. When I do what is required of me, they leave me in peace. I am a ghost, you see. Nothing more. Arjav sighed. I do not understand this. I think you're suffering from a terrible self-deception, Erikos. You could assert your own will, but you're afraid to. Instead, you abandon yourself to hate and bloodshed, to this peculiar melancholia of yours. You are depressed because you are not doing what you really desire to do. The dreams will come again, Erikos. Mark my words, the dreams will come again and they will be more terrible than any you have experienced before. They have totally got his number. And what I really love about this is when I'm reading it again for the first time in all these years, and I remember dimly remember my reaction to it as a teenager, once again, and I think I've said this before in other shows, it's tempting to think that Murcock is writing this and it's actually quite a shallow take on a hero and all of Erico's problems are the problems of the author. But what sets Murcock apart is the antagonists, in inverted commas, have totally got his number and sum him up at the end of this book and tell him just how pathetic he is. And that's the truth of it and that's the truth of the character. That's why it's so brilliant. Yeah. That's why it's so brilliant and so loud and fantastic. Even, even for a fairly... 
you know what was knocked off by a teenager as a as a, a short story and then developed by a guy in his early twenties as part of a broader series of books. It's absolutely brilliant because he's deconstructing the behaviour of who is ostensibly our hero, but who's actually behaving like an absolute wanker. Yep. And the villains of the piece deconstruct him right there, right then, and it's it's fantastic. His, his own self-justification is the worst and weakest kind of, kind of self-justification for shitty behaviour, but it's so relatable. It's so relatable because everybody falls into this trap uh-huh. of behaving like a twat because there's an expectation or everybody else is behaving like a twat. Obviously, there are degrees of that. But he's, he's taking it to the ultimate degree of, of committing terrible crimes and stepping back and not intervening when other people commit terrible crimes. And he's been essentially unpicked. Yeah, and he's obviously told them about his dreams, but it's like, oh, poor me. Yeah. Look at these awful dreams I have when I assert my own individual thoughts. Yeah, yeah. And they just continue to unpick him, and he gets by turns emotional and introspective, and they're basically, for two pages, staging an intervention with what is essentially a Nazi. He's, he's a Nazi, isn't he? He's, he's completely bought in to this terrible narrative, and he's enacted it and murdered millions of people, or been responsible, or facilitated the murder of millions of people. This and is your role. Isn't that what Ragnaros basically said to him? Yeah. This is what you are born to do. Yeah. This is why we summoned you. Yeah. And it works. It says, I slumped down into my seat. I sought to avoid confusion, I said, by taking a simple course of action. It is true that I feel no kinship with those I lead, or those who thrust me before them, but undeniably... They are my kin. Let them fare how they will, Ernest had said. Your duty is not to them, it's to yourself. I sipped some wine. Then I said quietly, I'm afraid. Arjav shook his head. You're brave, it's not your fault. Who knows, I said. Perhaps at some stage in one of my incarnations I committed an enormous crime. And now I'm paying the price. And that, that's, that's a... a I really enjoyed reading that little bit because once we get further into the Coram books, there's a villain in the Coram books called Prince Gaynor the Damned, who it's suggested is actually an aspect of the Eternal Champion, oh, who right. fell, and his, his punishment is to be this, like, tormented villain. And, well, we'll get to Gaynor the Damned, but this is kind of a description of what happens, why Gaynor the Damned ends up in the, in the predicament he's in. Right. So I kind of, kind of enjoy that. Yeah. But anyway, Mocock nerds will know. Mocock nerds will know I'm talking about. Um, answers on a postcard to Mrs. House, if you can find her. It takes a Mocock nerd to understand what the hell I just said. I have no idea what you just said. So now they've broken him down, they persuade him to stay another night, and he dreams again, but it's not the usual sort. It's more of an epiphany on the nature of humanity. But, obviously, Amazad brings him his breakfast like dutiful woman number two that she is, and the now newly refreshed and self-actualised Erikos commits to peace and taking it to Queen Ayalinda and then admits that he'll have to marry her. And Ermazad gets a little bit teary at this. I mean, who wouldn't get teary when the genocidal mass murderer of your dreams says he's got to follow through and marry Queen Mean Girl of Necronel? So she's a bit upset. Yeah, because it obviously means her... 
imminent death. Well, yeah, there's that as well. <laughs> so Arjo isn't convinced, but he wishes Eric Erd all the best. And on exit in the city, he tells Roldero, who thinks it's a massive pile of balls, Roldero's not having it. But nevertheless, he takes the army under orders all the way back to Necronel, away from Lumstokai, in order to entreat the Queen to commit to peace. But Kerton got there ahead of him, and Kerton's got in the Queen's ear. Yes. And she's not having it. So she's got him weighed up, just like everybody else has got him weighed up. He can't weigh himself up, but everybody else has got him down. And after a brief flash of emotion, she shuts him down, and Kerton arrives with some dudes. And just for that split second, she shows a flash of emotion, as if to say, really, you've, you've, you've chosen the hippie chick over me. So Mean Girl all of a sudden realises that actually it's plump for somebody else and she's she's not overly happy with it. Take him, Caton, cried Ayolinda, and her voice was a scream of agony. I betrayed her. I had failed to be the strength she needed so desperately. Take him, alive or dead, he is a traitor to his kind. I was a traitor to her, that's what she really meant. That was why I must die. But I still hoped to save something. It's untrue, I began. But Kaitan was already cautiously advancing, his men spreading out behind him. I backed to a wall near a window. The throne room was on the first story of the palace. Outside were the private gardens of the Queen. Think, Islander, I said. Retract your command. You are driven by jealousy. I am no traitor. Slay him, Kaitan! But I slew Kaitan. As he came rushing at me, my sword flicked across his writhing, hate-filled face. He screamed, staggered. His hands rushed up to his head and then he toppled in his golden armour, toppled and fell with a crash to the flagstones. He was the first human I was to slay. And then he dives out the window. <laughs> he dives out the window and runs off to his ship with his loyal crew, who still appear to be fairly loyal to him, and sets sail. And a week later his crew drop him off near Luz Tokai and he returns to Arjav and Ermazad. So, in a way, part of me thinks, oh, poor Katon, but then you remember everything Katon's done and you think, oh no, fuck that guy. <laughs> he got what he deserved. He was 100% behind the Queen. He loved her yeah. when she was the princess. Yeah. He would do whatever. Well, yeah, it suggested early on that he thought he might have had a chance with the Queen before Erikos turned up, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. So Erikos spends a couple of months there and accomplishes two things. One, he's now got carte blanche to get properly and openly loved up on Amjad. And she's, and she's up, up for that. Yep. And two, he convinces Arjaz that there's a real solution to the problem at hand, and just because the Eldren doom themselves by the refusal to use their ancient weapons of mass destruction, he isn't bound by the same morals and ethics. Mmm. Arjaz's not entirely convinced, but... Well, also, I, I thought when I was reading through it, does that make Eriko as a traitor? Well, we'll see, won't we? Yeah. Telling him to bring out these destructive weapons that the humanity no longer have. Yeah, well, he's it's, it's permanently switched his allegiances now, haven't he? If he's arguing for the use of WNDs against, against the humans. So, chapter 25, the attack, and the forces of humanity inevitably arrive to do war on Lustakai, and Roldero is in charge. And for seven days, the city is besieged, and Erikos pressures Arjas to break out the forbidden weapons. And eventually, with the gate breaking, he relents. And Erikos heads to the gate and slays Roldero. And, you know, for a second I was like, oh, poor Roldero. Then I remembered, oh, no, no, fuck that guy as well. Um, 
<laughs> you know, he might have been a little bit more um, uh, good on the sort of fellowship side of things than Katon, but he still did really fucking horrendous things. So, yeah. I just called him traitor all the time, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, he did. Which I think wound, understandably, wound Eriko's up. Yeah, he had a point, though. He groaned, his face lost all its anger, and he gasped. Now we can be friends again, Eriko's. And he died. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, bless him. It's quite I know. I know what you're saying about him. I totally get it. Yeah. But they were friends. Yeah. Probably the closest that Eriko's through all of this journey has ever made. Yeah. Other than with his dick, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the retreating warriors who were kind of a, a bit appalled by the fact that their general Roldero has now been cut down. They call out that Queen Eyelinda will lead them now, and Erikos tells them to fetch her to Parley the next day because she's actually with the human army. And they do, but she's having none of Erikos's flannel, and a million warriors attack the walls the next day. So, of course, they've broken out these uh, these terrible weapons now, and it doesn't go well for the million warriors of humanity. When the extermination was over, I was filled with a strange emotion which I could not then and cannot now define. It was a mixture of grief, relief and triumph. I mourned for Eilinda. She was somewhere there in the heap of blackened burn and smouldering flesh. One piece of ruined meat amongst many. Her beauty gone in the same instance of her life. And then it was that I made my final decision. Or did I indeed make it at all? Was it not what I had been brought here to do? Or was it the crime I had mentioned earlier? Was this the crime I committed that doomed me to be what I was? Was I right? In spite of Arjav's constant antagonism to my plan, I ordered the machines out of Luz Tokai and, mounted in one of them, led them over land. And then he describes what he did, which is basically, he returns to the continent and cities of humanity and carries out total genocide of the human race. A really good line, actually. A very powerful line is they came and we met, they were helpless against our weapons. It took two hours to destroy a million warriors. Mm. That's quite a strong and powerful... Yeah. I mean, that's before he then obviously went on. Yeah. Now, Arjav, for his part, is uh, pretty aghast about all this. Understandably, I think. Yeah. How can you trust somebody who fought for a different side... Yeah. And then totally wipes out that side. Yeah. And Ajav says, you decided that. You took this vast responsibility onto your own shoulders. You judged them and executed them according to your own interpretation of justice, Ajav said quietly. Really, Erikos, I do not think you know yet what you have done. I sighed. But it is done. I was an empty man. Yes, his eyes were full of a profound pity for me. He gripped my arm. Come, friend, back to Manadin. Leave this stink behind. Ermizad awaits you. I was an empty man then, bereft of emotion. I followed him towards the river. It moved sluggishly now. It was choked with black dust, with burned flesh. I think I did right, I said. It was not my will, you know, but something else. I think it might have been my fate from the beginning. I think it was another will than mine which dragged me here. Ragnos. Ragnos, like me, was a puppet, a tool used as I was used. It was preordained that humanity should die on this planet. It is better that you think that, he said. Come now, 
Let us go home. He was just on a one-man mission, wasn't he? Or was he that he was power-hungry with those old weapons that he was using? Yeah, it's it's even after they deconstruct him um, and basically do that intervention, you think, right, okay, they've got through to him. But actually, the final twist in the tale from Moorcock is, right, okay, they've taken this fascist murderer who thinks that he's destined to do these things because of some cosmic predestination or predeterminism, and they've appealed to him and changed his path. But actually, all they've done is given him the tools to do exactly what he was going to do, but to the other side. To effectively his own people. Yeah. And Arjav's pretty horrified by it. But not so horrified that in the epilogue, we, we, we don't find that Erico's marries Amazad, and even though the cat of children, he muses on the cycle of time, and Earth is peaceful, but he muses on how long that may last. So Erikos gets, to all intents and purposes at this point, a pretty solid period of peace with the babe, the hippie babe of his dreams. Although he does brood for a year or two. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know. Over what he did. Yeah. Well, we've all brooded a bit, haven't we? Yeah, but we haven't all wiped out a whole civilization. Yeah. Yeah. And th- this, this, I think, is, is a great indication of why... In some ways, this novel is um, one of the more challenging Moorcock novels because the hero, in inverted commas, is an out-and-out bastard who continually gives himself excuses for his appalling behaviour. But it's, it's, it's a, a brilliant deconstruction of, of the, the fantasy character arc and Murcock's well known for for writing um, critiques of other fantasy and sci-fi authors and their kind of fascistic, right-wing leaning tendencies. So what he does is he takes that kind of character, but takes it to extreme, absurd lengths and degrees in terms of committing genocide on a grand scale. First, trying to do it on, from one perspective, and then at the last minute, in an ultimate swerve committing it from another perspective, all the while is being basically deconstructed and told what a weak knobhead he is by the antagonists. So is it that he's deconstructed or is he a psychopath? Because well, it yeah. talks in the ep- epilogue yeah. about him having no guilt yeah. as he believed a higher power made that decision, thus absolving him of what he did. Mm. What a cop out! Yeah, seriously. Yeah, but what what I love about it is it's knowing, it's knowingly written that way, and it's it's we're criticizing the character of Erico's, but I'm not criticizing the novel. Oh no, it's the character. It's it's because Moorcock, I think, knew exactly what he was doing in this deconstruction of the heroic fantasy character, and took it to extreme degrees to the point where just at that point you think actually he's turned a corner. He has turned a corner, but he's gone in the opposite direction um, for all the wrong reasons, you know. He's turned the corner, and but he still does exactly the same thing. But the only switch that's been flicked is he's doing it for woman two, not woman one. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there is something in... 
I can't remember exactly where in the epilogue it was, but there was something about... Uh, if he was to think about actually what he did, would that make him really struggle again? Yeah, yeah. So he's choosing to blank it out. Oh, yeah, for God's sake, don't, don't reflect or have any emotional connection with any of yeah. the crimes you've committed. Yeah, not buying it at all. Yeah. Although I do like how he ended it with, we and Earth are at peace, but how long can it last? Yeah. Oh, how long can it last? Yeah. Love that line. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, we've finished The Eternal Champion. And that's the, the second time you've read it. You first read it about 15 or 16 years ago. So, what are your overall thoughts of The Eternal Champion? Because I know that... I, I do recall when we first discussed this, you said um, that Elric was your favourite, but when you thought it over, you thought, oh, actually, I did really like Erica's. How foolish I was. <laughs> isn't, it wor- isn't it interesting that preparing for the podcast and reading it and memorising certain bits and reflecting on it as you go along. Oh, my God. He's now my least favourite. Yeah. And for me, he's my least favourite incarnation of the Eternal Champion. But over the years, I always thought I enjoyed the Eternal Champion, but I never kind of had it up there as one of the better ones. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting one. Mm. And it and it um it ties a lot of things together and it kind of provides that through line for for a lot of the characters and Erico's does pop up in some like sort of you know crossover events in in an Elric story and a Hartman story uh, two Elric stories one Hartman story and the Hartman story is actually exactly the same story as the Elric story but told from Hartman's point of view. Oh, that's a good that's a good way to do something. That's it? really cool because yeah. you get Elric's take on this team up. And then you get Hartman's take on this team up, and his his the narrative from Hartman's perspective, Elric comes across like a right tool. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas in the Elric one, Elric's like, yeah, he's the man, you know, who are these dudes? Uh, yeah, it's, it's really good. But uh, yeah. Oh, did you mean Erico's came across? No, no, no. It's Hartman, Hartman's kind of opinion of, of Elric oh, right. is, is is really funny <laughs> when you've when you've read it the other way around. Because I read since Sailor on the Seas Affair, I think from memory, or is this? Yeah, Sailor on the Seas Affair. Pretty sure it's on Sailor on the Seas Affair. And that's one of the earliest Elric books I read after um, I'd read the original ones that Pops gave me. So I read the Hartman version of that story, which I think is in The Quest for Tanalon, which was a late, uh, maybe a late 70s, mid to late 70s book. And getting that same story, but from Hartman's perspective, was really entertaining because another character's view on Elric yeah. <laughs> is, is, is really interesting, really cool. Um, but yeah, so sorry, going back to the point, this this was never really kind of up there with, with my, my Mocock stories, but I think it's um, it's quite, I found it quite challenging, but I love the fact that whilst you're challenged by the Erica's character, all of that is reinforced and um, Quite nicely articulated by Arjav and Amazad when, when for two pages they basically deconstruct him, mm. and that's the brilliance of, the, of of this book. It's fantastic. It not only de- deconstructs Erica's, it deconstructs the classic fantasy male power fantasy archetype in in this kind of fiction, and it deconstructs it brilliantly. But even then, because it's Marcock, you've got that final twist. He does after he's been deconstructed, he doesn't turn the corner. He does something 
<laughs> Arguably, depending on your perspective, even worse. He didn't cross the car. He didn't turn a corner. He crossed the continent. That's right. So if if you were going to do it purely based upon mathematics, it's like he's killed. Say he's killed ninety eight percent of the Eldrin. Um. So the total number of people left in the world there are fifty million humans and two hundred thousand Eldrin. So based purely on numbers, um, if you're going to commit genocide. Do you just kill the Eldrin because you want to kill 200,000 more people? No, he kills 50 million humans. Yeah. You know. Women, children, everything that earlier on really played on him. Yeah, so he he tried to excuse himself from the murder of Eldrin women and children. Yeah. And said, that wasn't me. Yeah. But then, once this switch flicks in his head and he becomes committed to his course of action to serve the Eldrin, he kills women and children. Yeah. In their multitudes. Yeah. Mocock. You've got to love Mocock. Yeah. It's great, isn't it? But he broods for two years to deal with But he broods a bit. He broods a bit. Is he mortal now? So yeah. he, could, he could brood for ten years. Yeah. Well, we're going to do Von Beck <laughs> next, but at some point we will get back to Eric and struck John Dacre with the Phoenix in Obsidian. Yes. And we'll find out just how long his period of peace lasts. And the peace... Spoiler, not that long. <laughs> Yeah. And the piece for the patrons, sorry, I forgot what that was. Oh yeah, we're gonna um we're gonna have a read of the sixty page original nineteen fifty seven short story. That's right, yeah. Which we did touch upon because that that dream paragraph um with all the list of names, we did actually look at the one from the fifty seven uh, one. Yes, we did. After uh Simon Perrins pointed out on Twitter that there was a version of that from the from the late fifties. Uh, so thanks for that, Simon. So we'll we'll have a read of that. And we'll pop out an extra, you know, maybe half hour supplementary to this for the patrons mm. in a couple of weeks. But other than that, thanks for a great hour and a half. Um, I have uh, knocked back my second giant tiki glass of orange and cacao gin and ginger ale. It's I'm starting to feel it now. So I think perhaps we need to have something to eat and knock ourselves up another drink. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah, that's great. So, thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon. Bye. Thanks as ever to Phil, not only for being a great co-host, but for facilitating my midlife crisis, as I continue to wish I could give up work and do this full-time. Now, before we continue, I just want to go back briefly to Mocock's introduction to the Millennium Edition. The Eternal Champion is not one of my ambitious books, but it is central to my work for the reasons I've described. It contains, in a simplistic form, many of the themes of more complicated novels and a fair amount of the atmosphere. The Eternal Champion is, in one sense, the scream of a young man who finds the world a more complicated place than he imagined and feels, therefore, betrayed. Betrayal is certainly one of its primary themes, as in so many of my fantasy romances from the Elric stories onwards. But the simple message has always been the same through all these books. We are not betrayed by others, we betray ourselves by too readily accepting easy myths to explain the things which bewilder us. Jerry Cornelius, that most ambiguous of all the champion's aspects, is forever being brought low by his own ego, by his willingness to live according to the formulae of his own myths and fantasies. In this sense, most of my books are anti-romances. The Eternal Champion has proved a useful jumping-off point not only for a number of books, but also for a rock stage show with Hawkwind, 
parts of which are on the record album Warrior on the Edge of Time from 1972. A film script, so far unshot, and a number of stories by other writers. The Eternal Champion is a kind of romantic everyman, his struggles and confusions reflecting, very broadly indeed, those which most of us experience. As it happens, we'll be back with Jerry in a week or two, as Hussein and I finally conquered our challenges and at last recorded the final programme, Phase 2. So watch this space for that. Also, in a few shows' time, I will be touching on Mocock and music. We'll be talking a little bit about Hawkwind and their relationship with Mocock. And also, the other day, I picked up a very interesting pamphlet from jadedesign.com, which is uh, an absolute treasure trove for Mocock fans. And it's called The Nexus of Michael Mocock's Elric of Melnibane and Blue Oyster Cult by Patrick R. Berger. And uh, I still haven't got around to reading it yet, but I'm looking forward to that. I'll let you know how it goes. Meanwhile, though, thanks to our fabulous patrons, Lord of the Higher Worlds, Norman, that most inscrutable baker on the rocks, our Jugadors, Clarky, Matt, Craig, Loz, Steve, Tom and Randall, and Chaos Engineers, Fred, David, who's mysteriously going by the sigil J in the patron dashboard, Jim, John, Neil, Simon Perrins, Robber, and Mel Pertwee. Now, you may have noticed a couple of new names in there. Andrew and Randall have joined us on the good ship Domblas. We had a little chinwag when they came aboard before they went off to play dice with Brute of Lashmar. Randall said, It seems I encountered Morcock around the same age as you did. I devoured all of the core champion stuff between the ages of 12 and 24. As I just turned 47 this year, it seems we were probably reading these around the same time. I know you understand just how much of an impact such a vast cosmic story can have on a young mind. I've always been an avid reader, but no one else's writings hit me quite as hard as Mike's. Roger Zelazny's Amber Chronicles were a huge influence too. In fact, my young mind easily connected the pattern and the Logrus with Law and Chaos. My favourite champions have always been Elric and Erikos. The second Ether books are also superb. They blew my adult mind, much like the earlier works blew my adolescent mind. The War Amongst the Angels is quite possibly my favourite work of fiction ever. I was a member of the Mocock fan club, Nomads of the Time Streams, in the late 80s and early 90s. I had the opportunity to hang out with Mike and Linda a few times. The man is not only an excellent writer, but also a kind and gentle human being who always expressed just as much appreciation for his fans as we have for him. Thank you for your podcast. It's such a pleasure to listen to fellow travellers of the Moonbeam Roads discuss and laugh as you reconnect with these tales that have inspired me for so many years. Randall, you are more than bloody welcome, mate, and thank you for your support. It's always really gratifying as well to hear people who've had that contact with Mocock, and it reinforces everything that you hear about him, that he's just really a champion bloke. Really, really good. Meanwhile, our other new patron, Andrew, said, Good day, all. I started reading Mike as a 13-year-old. A library copy of Knight of Swords was my first experience. I eventually got enough money to start buying personal copies, sometimes multiple copies for the different cover art. Andrew, I know where you're coming from there. He continues, My strongest, not best memory, is my mum reading my library copy of Breakfast in the Ruins and having her bust me up to the library to complain about lending a 13-year-old child such a filthy book. It didn't stop me, though. Loving your podcast, particularly like how you switch from one aspect of the Eternal Champion to another. Looking forward to many years of listenership. Stick with us for the long run, Andrew. At our pace, it's probably going to take us several cosmic cycles to get through everything, but we're going to do our best. 
Now, over on Twitter, I also had a really good gab with friend of the show, Jason, a.k.a. The Pastor. We've had a few good conversations, and he's a real die-hard Mocock fan. He said of his relationship with Mocock, I think that the reason Elric resonated so well with me when I first encountered him, and then Erico's and the rest did as well, is that the champion in all his guises, from Bastable to Cornelius to the rest, struggles through depression. Those of us who struggle with that, and let's be honest, it's a common malady amongst fantasy readers, have a hero we relate to in ways other fantasists have ignored. Despite his inhumanity, Elric is relatable. I may not be fighting and serving the Eldren, but I do get John Dacre's mood. Mike channels the angst of despair perfectly, then pushes through it to give the reader hope. I absolutely credit Mike's books for getting me through the darkest times of my life, and it's why I keep coming back to his books again and again. They're not books to me. Coram is a trusted friend. Hawkmoon is a brother who struggles through the dark times with me. They're so real to me that they transcend literature in a way no other writer pulls off. Zelazny's Lords of Amber and the Thieves of Sanctuary come close, but the champion really is eternal. Mike talks about reading books at different levels. I mean, yeah, I get it. Narnia is an allegory for the Christian faith. A Wizard of Earthsea is about the darkness within us all. But not until I read While the Gods Laugh did I ever experience what fantasy could accomplish. What is this? What kind of ending is this? This is too much like real life. Ah, okay. I get it. It's me. Wow. At that point I was hooked. It was the first adult reading I'd found. In the pre-internet days, I hit every used bookstore in every town I passed in an effort to find a Michael Moorcock book I didn't own. And in every new book, I uncovered a new piece of me. Maybe not new, as it was a buried part of me, but it was newly discovered. It amazes me how his works helped me find myself. Why am I fanatical about his books? Because I've learned who I am through them, and then, like his champion, I can grow from there. Thanks for those thoughts, Pastor. I always really enjoy your exchanges, and I'm totally in agreement about the relatability of Mocock's characters. But that's about it from me for now. So stay tuned, after the transition, for Chapter 3 of the Journal of Jared Arthur Connolly. And before I go, don't forget you can follow and gab with us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The blog is at breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and we're out there on most podcatchers. If you have a favourite and want to on it, drop me a line and I'll see what I can do about it. P.S. It's interesting that two of the three chaps I've just quoted actually mentioned Lazulazny and the Amber Chronicles. Now, I put a Twitter poll out to see what people thought the next book Phil and I should tackle is, and the Warhound and the World's Pain won, so we'll be looking at Von Beck. Which is quite neat, because of course Von Beck and Erico's stroke John Dacre do combine in the third in the Eternal Champion sequence, so that's kind of worked out quite nicely. However, I did have an option on there, which was non-Mocock interlude, and my first choice was likely to be Nine Princes in Amber. So since the Amber Chronicles have come up a couple of times, I'll give that some more consideration. But anyway, stay safe, and I'll see you on the Moonbeam Roads. The Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly, Chapter 3 Airs and Graces Chance meetings have ever been crucial influences upon the direction of my tumbling down, across, 
and over what more accomplished wanderers commonly call the Moonbeam Roads. Chance, destiny, fate, or a combination of all three had conspired to lead me into Professor Hildebrand's workshop all those months. Or was it years ago? I can no longer tell. A day after witnessing the fall of Sarbrook's walls, Morton and I were once again negotiating congested roads and trails. I had learned by now that the Scandium was an agreeable cove, an easy company. In the absence of any obvious pursuit from above or behind, the refugees were more relaxed in pace as the day wore on. By nightfall, we had succeeded in putting a healthy 50 or so miles between the beleaguered city and our backs. I had stopped and explained to Morton that I was bloody famished and could not possibly march on without some decent food, a foot massage, self-administered sadly, and at least a couple of hours sleep. Regarding me as though I were a weakling child, he grunted assent and led us into a twisted copse that gave way unbidden to an escarpment littered with the stumps of felled oaks. Below us, a deciduous wood of rich green was gilded briefly with the first gold of autumn by the dying twilight. For a moment I was reminded of home. Casting aside the feeling of loss, I ran down the slope to catch up with my companion whom by now was forty paces ahead. Before reaching the edge of the trees, we glimpsed briefly the lights of some settlement, away beyond the sprawling woods, but it was impossible to judge distance by now. Confident that within an hour we would have some meat to cook, Martin plunged soundlessly forward. I followed, feeling utterly clumsy and conspicuous by comparison. Once swallowed by the dense undergrowth surrounding the mighty trunks, any feelings of familiarity with the terrain evaporated. The boles were twisted into grotesque shapes as if the trees had only grown in spite of some internal agony, and the air carried a heavy smell of decay. Factoring the darkness which, as we proceeded further, was almost total, and I had taken to holding onto Morton's axe shaft lest he get ten paces ahead and I lose all sense of direction and become utterly lost. Morton halted, tensed, and grunted his irritation when I stumbled into his broad back. I smelled pork. I am not, nor ever will be, any kind of tracker, but the smell of seared meat can draw me from leagues away. Someone nearby was cooking pig or boar over an open fire. My knees grew weak. I had in truth eaten the best part of seven quail and a haunch of silverside only three days previously, but after walking pretty much ever since and surviving solely on biscuits, salami, dried apricot and salted herring alascandia, my stomach was protesting loudly. Hot food was imperative if I were to travel any substantial distance further. I boldly stepped past my companion and strode forth, batting aside low branches and foliage, until I stepped into a half-glade, illuminated by a crackling fire. My gauntleted hand, gripping the pommel of my sheathed sabre, I straightened my back and spoke in my finest and deepest officer's voice. I am Connolly. My companion here is Morton. Morton obligingly emerged from the trees across the clearing. I still don't know quite how he managed that trick, but I continued. Should you feel obliged to share your meal, you will be subject to a show of our deepest appreciation. The two occupants of the glade were already afoot and facing me, armed, no doubt having heard my headlong crash through the foliage. Although accoutred radically differently, they shared common features and were evidently brothers. The larger of the two, and immediately the most imposing, wore the majority of a suit of full-plate armour of great craftsmanship, and wielded a similarly well-wrought sword. His eyes bored into me as if attempting to divine my nature and capabilities by sight alone. His eyes continued to fix mine even when his brother swivelled at the slender hip to face the emergent Morton. Younger and slighter in build, but possessing a lithe physicality, 
His rich cloak was fastened at the neck with a clasp that echoed the livery of his sibling's breastplate. Unarmoured, but poised with a slender duelist blade, held as if it were simply an extension of his slim wrist, this second was, on further examination, possibly as dangerous an individual as the other, and perhaps more so. Had we emerged from the trees armed, I have no doubt that I at least may well have come a serious cropper. As it was, my gentlemanly mien won the day, and the brothers relaxed slightly. Or, of course, I simply may have not seemed particularly threatening. I prefer to think the former. I rummaged into my haversack and produced a half-bottle of Madame Blavatsky's 30-year-old oak-conditioned cognac, and the younger brother's face lightened. Within minutes, the countenance of the tank had also lightened, and, following a swift prayer to the god of flight, we were sitting together around the generous fire sharing slices of seared wild pig and toasting each other's health with the warming liquor of an alternative universe. Thus were Friedrich and Vincent, sons of the late Earl and heirs to the ruins of Saarbrück, introduced to Connolly of Norfolk and Morton of Harkett. We talked late into the night. Vincent, the elder of the two, was intrigued by my accent and unusual apparel. His armour and brusque soldierly manner only partially hid a sharp intelligence, and I fear he found my vague answers to his probing questions unsatisfying. He did not pursue the issue. He was, I think, in a suppressed state of shock, his noble bearing refusing to bend to the trauma of losing everything, including his father, to the invaders. Friedrich, on the other hand, seemed to be taking everything remarkably well, although I suspect he was more adept at masking his emotions than his elder brother. Duty to his city was not as fierce a priority, and we had learned that he had half-dragged Vincent into the catacombs below Saarbrück when the walls were breached. Vincent, already reeling from seeing his prized cavalry and loyal captains and friends butchered by the vile technology of the Dark Empire, had acquiesced only when ordered away by his father. Morton had heard on the road that the Earl had been flayed and hanged from the parapets above the South Gate. We thought it best not to share that with the grieving brothers. 